Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. With the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump approaching, we're sharing a past program on impeachment featuring Joshua Matz, counsel for the House Judiciary Committee and an adjunct professor at Georgetown Law. At the time, Professor Matz had just published his book, To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment, co-authored with Professor Larry Tribe. Professor Matz shares stories from the book, explaining when he thinks impeachment is a good idea and when it's not, detailing times when it's bolstered democracy in the past and times when it's failed, and much more. He sat down with NCC President Jeffrey Rosen in 2018. Here's Jeff. Thank you. Josh, you said that you and Larry Tribe changed your views about impeachment. You went in expecting to find one thing, and after uh, beginning your research, you reached a different conclusion. Tell us about that process. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you all very much for coming. It's wonderful to be here with you in, in this amazing Constitution Center. You know, we, we went into the book in the middle of 2017 aware that there was going to be a fairly substantial amount of impeachment talk until the end of Donald Trump's presidency, whether that came in at the end of his four-year term, after eight years, or sooner. And we understood that there was a need for a book that would really lay out how impeachment works, what it means, why it exists, what its perils are, uh, what its pitfalls are. And uh, we also went into it feeling pretty darn outraged about some of the things that President Trump was doing. Uh, in fact, Larry and I work on a number of cases against the administration I'm counsel in the Emoluments Clause litigation. Uh, we've worked on the travel ban case. I'm involved in the transgender military ban case and a lawsuit over who's in charge of the Consumer Finance Bureau. And so I've had a fair involvement in some of these issues. And I think we went into it with more of a sense that, you know, people are going to be talking about this and there's a problem there. And we want to write a book that will help illuminate a path forward, you know, potentially to, to ending this presidency or at least to thinking about what that would look like. But in the course of writing it, we came to appreciate that the impeachment power is a lot more complicated than we had ourselves understood, uh, and certainly we think than many folks out there understood. And we, we realized that at this moment in American history, things are so unstable, and forces of tribalism and polarization loom so large in American life that it's unclear whether the impeachment power uh, can function the way it was meant to as a bipartisan method that brings the country together in the face of someone who threatens the entire constitutional order. And we realized that even attempting an impeachment, even talking about attempting an impeachment, could itself have all sorts of severe negative consequences in our democratic system. And so we ultimately concluded that a, a far higher and nobler purpose for this book was to lay out in a bipartisan manner that everyone could understand and that would be easy and clear uh, where, when impeachment is appropriate, when it's not, and when engaging in impeachment politics might itself pose a threat to the democracy we're trying to protect. Wow, what a tremendous service and what an appropriate place to discuss it. So now, uh, teach us. Uh, let, let us begin with this question, when is impeachment appropriate? Uh, and you begin, of course, with history, uh, and you ask, why does this power exist in the Constitution? Well, the framers, you know, it's sort of funny. We take for granted that there's an impeachment power, uh, you know, because it, it, it's been, it seems kind of crazy. How could you design a Constitution with a presidency this powerful and not have some kind of escape hatch if things go awry? It was not obvious to the framers. And part of the reason it wasn't obvious is that they were designing the impeachment power at the same time that they were designing the entire system. Will there be a president? Will there be multiple presidents? What powers will they have? How will they be chosen? How often will elections occur? Uh, and so they were, they were trying to situate impeachment in the whole scheme of this new plan of government that they were devising. And when they looked at history, it didn't really offer a lot of useful ideas. I mean, to the framers, the history of bad rulers was a history of assassinations and coups and revolution and invasion. There just wasn't a well-established historical mechanism to peacefully and civilly remove someone from power when they had abused the trust put in, put in that person. And in fact, Fr Ben Franklin said at the convention, if we do not allow for impeachment, 
then there will be no alternative but assassination. And so Benjamin Franklin said, we need to allow for impeachment. There needs to be a peaceful means of ending a presidency. You know, and some of the framers objected to that. They said, look, if the president does something bad, he'll be checked, he'll be balanced, they'll run out the clock on his four-year term, they can indict his co-conspirators, there'll be political consequences. It's too dangerous because we're trying to create an energetic executive. And if you allow somebody else to wield this club over the president's head, the presidency won't function as intended. But the vast majority of the framers just didn't buy it. In their view, it was too dangerous to allow someone to have that much power and to not allow the nation any means of escape for that long a period. And in particular, the framers had a couple things in mind. They worried first and foremost about electoral treachery, about the idea that the president would corrupt the electoral college, or that once in office, the president, knowing he couldn't be removed or indicted, would do anything to remain in power to make sure that he could never suffer consequences for his wrongdoing. They worried about abuse of the fisc, the, the treasury, and abuse of the military. And they worried about bribery. I mean, this is a connection to the emoluments clause. They worried that the president, who would only serve for a brief period of time, could be too easily corrupted by foreign powers who were engaged in precisely those intrigues across the ocean. And so the framers understood this set of core evils that they needed to guard against, but ultimately they wrote a power that was much bigger than those, a power that was designed to allow the Congress to end a presidency uh, whenever the president committed great and dangerous offenses against the nation. Treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, but not maladministration. Madison rejected a general catch-all that would impeach the president just for being a bad president. So what conduct justifies removing a president from office under the standards treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors? Yes, well, you, know, you say it not maladministration, a term which I am sure is well known to all of you. And it is. You know, maladministration was essentially this idea that you're doing a bad job. You know, a kind of like, be better at this uh, problem. And so it would be bad personnel decisions, bad policy decisions, essentially general shabbiness at being the president. And, and it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just Madison who rejected it, it was the Constitutional Convention. There was a debate over basically what conduct would justify uh, initiating impeachment proceedings. One thought was, you know, let's limit it to things like treason and bribery. Uh, another thought was basically any, anything the president does that's bad, maladministration, which is essentially what many modern parliamentary systems have in the form of a no confidence vote. So for example, in the United Kingdom, parliament can vote no confidence uh, without evidence of a crime or some other terrible act of misconduct against the country. Uh, but here, the framers wanted genuine wrongdoing. They, didn't, they, they wanted the norm to be that a president would be elected and would be expected to serve a four-year term unless they did something terribly bad. And, uh, and so ultimately, they said maladministration won't work, and so they put this phrase in high crimes and misdemeanors. One of the most famously vague contested phrases in all of American constitutional law. You know, and you wonder how much meaning they ascribe to that. So you pointed out a minute ago that Madison objected to maladministration. But in the very first Congress, a debate arose about the president's uh, appointment decisions. And in Congress itself, Madison got up and said, well, if he makes terrible appointment de decisions, we're going to impeach him for maladministration. Right? So it's not obvious that the framers assigned as much weight to these words and decisions as we, in retrospect, assigned to them. But the clear understanding was it needed to be bad. And I'm happy to talk a bit more about that if, if that would be you know, where, where we can go. You know, I think you, you look at the list of, 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 uh, in that constitutional provision. Lawyers love lists. Uh, we're, we're good at text. And so treason, bribery, high crimes, misdemeanors. And there's a legal principle called the justum generis which says when you have a list, and at the end of the list there's a catch-all phrase, it means things of the same basic type as you have at the beginning of the list. And so in the book, the way that we approach high crimes misdemeanors to start is by asking, well, what is treason? And what is bribery? Which people don't talk about very much. You know, or they do talk about it. They say Trump committed treason by conspiring with Russia, uh, forgetting that Russia is not an enemy of the United States within the meaning of international law, and therefore that anything he did to help them wouldn't formally qualify as treason. But so you have treason, you have bribery. These... What is treason? It requires two witnesses. Give us more about treason. Sure. So treason is it's essentially a betrayal of the nation where you either engage in 
armed uh, warmongering against the country, or in which you give aid and comfort to its enemies. And you know, I, I think it's fair to say that it's pretty unlikely that any modern president is going to lead an armed insurrection against the United States. Uh, these are not problems we really have anymore. There are interesting questions about when the president's involvement in, say, a cyber attack conspiracy could constitute treason in the sense of levying war, but that's pretty unlikely to occur. Uh, and then you have, uh, and then you have uh, giving aid and comfort to our enemies. Our enemies nowadays include the likes of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Enemies within the meaning of the treason clause, though, are typically understood to be enemies with whom we're in an open state of war. Uh, and not merely nations that are hostile to us. And the reason for that is that the framers were worried about misuse of the treason power, because it had been used throughout English history to go after enemies of the crown. So they wrote all these limitations into the Constitution. And as Jeff pointed out, you need a certain number of witnesses. You need to... Imp I think because they wanted to make sure that you couldn't have what you had across the Atlantic, where on the say-so of an agent of the king, but without real proof that would come from multiple perspectives, you could be, you know, your, your life could be destroyed, your life could be taken from you, and your whole bloodline could be corrupted. Uh, and so the framers wrote limitations against that into the Constitution. Uh, and so when you look at a crime like treason or bribery, you know, with treason you see betrayal of the country of the first order in a way that really imperils our ability to continue as a kind of going concern, as a democracy. And when you think about bribery, you think about corruption of the first order. The president selling out the public interest to advance his own pr purely private interest. And so from that, we extrapolate an understanding of high crimes and misdemeanors that what you're talking about here are momentous offenses that a reasonable person would know are wrong, that involve an element of evil intent that are crimes against the country as a whole, and that pose a genuine threat to our constitutional system. And that those characteristics basically mark out what is a high crime and a misdemeanor, which is what you need to show in order to decide that impeachment is an appropriate next step. Uh, very powerful stuff and very high bar. Now, there have been uh, the well-known impeachments in American history of Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton and the nearly averted uh, one of uh, Richard Nixon, but you discuss in your book some lesser known impeachment efforts, including against Jefferson, Tyler, Wilson, and Truman. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, well, you know, it's, fu you know th it's funny how these narratives develop. I think most people are aware that there was an effort to impeach Andrew Johnson right after the Civil War. Uh, the, the consensus view among many historians in that impeachment, for what it's worth, is that it was a partisan effort, that it was inappropriate, that the charges against him, which were that he had violated a law passed by Congress about whether he could fire certain members of his cabinet, uh, that those charges were, were, were kind of BS. We take a very different view. Our book, our, our, we argue that the uh, Johnson case was where impeachment would have been justified because he was essentially a neo-Confederate who was trying to undo all of the achievement, as it were, of the Civil War, and who would essentially strip newly freed Southern blacks of all of the rights that they had won. And that a president who was an, essentially a neo-Confederate uh, deserved to be removed from power. You know, but so there's the Johnson impeachment, there's Nixon, and there's can, can, Clinton. Such an interesting and provocative point. Does the fact that c Congress, by one vote, decided and President uh, Chief Justice Taft later reaffirmed that the Tenure of Office Act that Johnson was impeached for violating when he fired Secretary of War Stanton was itself unconstitutional? Does that matter to you? Uh, well, it matters in, in the following sense. When the House brings impeachment charges against the president, it matters what they write in their articles of impeachment. Uh, they, the House defines the terms on which it will join combat with the chief executive, and the Senate then has to adjudicate those allegations. The point we make in the book is that they brought the wrong case that they brought a case alleging a violation of a probably unconstitutional statute, which was in fact subsequently held unconstitutional. Um, but everyone knew that what was really afoot was that President Johnson was exercising all of the powers available to him to stop the reconstruction of the post-Civil War South. And if they had impeached on that basis, on the basis that he was trying to salt the earth of everything that was being done to make this country free for a, a, a racially defined population, uh, that, that that would have been a, an appropriate high crime and misdemeanor. So we think that the Senate was correct to acquit on the case that the House brought, 
but that the House could and should have pleaded a better case that would have probably justified the president's conviction and removal from office. Um, but so in the book, we talk about the Johnson, Nixon, and Clinton impeachments were the classic case studies. Uh, less well known, of course, is the fact that there have been many efforts throughout our history to use the impeachment power in maybe surprising ways. So for example, when Thomas Jefferson was in office, he refused to appoint a new collector of the Port of Boston. And this was a problem, apparently, because the existing collector was a former revolutionary general who really wanted to retire, and he was miserable, and he was getting criticized in the press. And Josiah Quincy, a representative from, from Boston, from Massachusetts, brought an article of impeachment against Johnson in the House of Representatives for deliberate neglect in appointing a replacement for the port, you know, the, the guy in charge of the port of Boston. The resolution failed 171 to 1 which is some indication that it was not taken seriously. And you know, it's, like, it's funny, because when you read the, the transcript from the House at the time, he gets up and makes his motion, and then there's just 50 pages of everyone all, you know, finding new and creative ways to call him crazy. And you know, they, they were very inventive back then. You know? We haven't seen the likes of this since Gulliver's Travels, which was a, a sick burn back in the early 1800s. And, and ultimately, the resolution fails. What's interesting in that case is that, in fact, that day, Jeffers sent a new nominee in for that position, and it was filled almost immediately thereafter. And so Josiah Quincy, who had brought the article of impeachment, got exactly what he wanted. And years later, after he had served as president of Harvard University and had many other great achievements, he told a biographer that no labor in his long life was as fully justified as his effort to impeach Thomas Jefferson. Um, although that may not have just been because of the Port of Boston situation, he had written a letter to John Adams describing Jefferson as a dish of skim milk curdling at the head of the nation. Uh, you know, so, so the idea that you hate the bastard and we need to impeach him is not something that's new in, in 2018. Um, but in the book, we talk about all of these other efforts uh, under Woodrow Wilson in the debate over ratification of the Treaty of Versailles, under Truman when he fired General Douglas MacArthur, uh, and then the next year when he uh, illegally seized the steel mills, uh, under Hoover, Herbert Hoover, uh, where this sort of crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist brought articles of impeachment against him for his entanglement with the banks and his foreign policy. We show all of these different examples of impeachment in American history to demonstrate that there's a diversity of, of, uh, of ways in which high crimes and misdemeanors have been understood and a diversity of uses to which the impeachment power has been put in political combat. Was the Nixon uh, impeachment justified and should it have succeeded? Yes and yes. Why? Well, because obviously. Uh, <laughs> it was Nixon. What kind of a question is that? <laughs> what kind of an answer is that? Uh, so the Nixon impeachment was justified. Here was a president who used his power to direct the domestic surveillance services among other institutions, to destroy his political opponents, to steal information. Uh, he, uh, that kind of conduct left unchecked uh, would pose a grave threat to the country. If the president could use the FBI and the CIA and private burglars to criminally, to, 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 to commit crimes and engage in sabotage of their foes, to conceal the evidence of their own wrongdoing, to lie about it publicly, uh, you, it would, it's hard to imagine the democratic system going on, especially after that came to light. What's interesting to me to think about is if no one had ever learned about what happened, obviously that would have been very bad, but it wouldn't necessarily have been as dangerous. But once the public knew what had happened, if the public had said, we are willing to leave you in office notwithstanding the fact that you did that, I think that would have fundamentally changed public understanding of acceptable uses of presidential power because it would have created a precedent. And presidents tend to move forward rather than backward in their claims to power. And so once it was known what had happened, not impeaching was far more dangerous than impeaching would have been. That's a fascinating and provocative claim. Are there circumstances then under which Congress has an obligation to impeach to preserve the constitutional order, and, and what are they? So in the strict sense of the term, we think the answer is no. Uh, and uh, that is chapter three of our book, and it's, it is far more eloquent than I could possibly be here. Of course, that's self-serving because we also wrote that. But, <laughs> but we were far more articulate when we had hours to really think about it. Generally, you know, well, in chapter three, which is entitled The Power Not to Impeach, 
we make a point, which is, it seems kind of like a simple intuitive point, but it actually really gets to the heart of how this power operates, that the Constitution does not establish the House of Representatives as a roving commissioner to smite every wrongdoer. The Constitution vests the House with the power to impeach. It vests the Senate with the power to try impeachments. The power to do something is not the same as a mandate to do something. Uh, and very rarely is Congress mandated to do anything in particular. And so what, what the Constitution says is you can only impeach, it is only appropriate to impeach if the president has committed bribery, treason, or high crimes and misdemeanors. That's the trigger. If that has occurred, impeachment is permissible. But the question of whether impeachment is wise, is prudent, is politically feasible, is not a question that it can answer. That that's a judgment that we have to make in our own time with an understanding of the world as we find it and of what the president did and of what the politics of our moment are. And ultimately what the Constitution does because it can't make that decision. It would have been crazy for the framers to try to make that decision in, you know, here in Philadelphia, you know, how many hundreds of years ago. They delegate and what they do is they delegate to Congress. They say this is, a, this is a decision that requires political judgment of the highest order. And Congress may not be perfect, but it's the best we've got. And they will have to figure out when it is wise to impeach. And to just give you know, an easy example of this, I'll give two. Uh, in Iran-Contra, which uh, occurred in the late 1980s, uh, President Ronald Reagan engaged in extraordinary abuses of power, essentially creating a parallel national security and surveillance uh, team within the executive branch that ostentatiously violated untold laws and constitutional provisions. As part of his foreign policy conduct, it came to light and Congress ultimately concluded, after a thorough investigation, it's not worth impeaching for a variety of reasons. Reagan remained popular. It was at the height of the Cold War. He was trying to engineer our strategy against the Soviet Union. The nation was still scarred by the impeachment of Richard Nixon. There were all these reasons where they basically just concluded it wouldn't be worth the pain of moving ahead with this. You know, or to consider another example, in the Clinton impeachment, Senator Robert Byrd got up in the Senate after the House had made its case, and he said, look, I think he is guilty. I think he committed perjury. I think he committed obstruction, which parenthetically, I also think he did. And I think that what he did was disgusting. But I am not going to vote to convict, even though I think he is guilty of the charged offenses. And even though I think those offenses are high crimes and misdemeanors, because I don't think it would be in the, in the benefit of the nation. It would not serve the greater good of the republic at this moment for us to remove President Clinton under these circumstances. And that, would, that may be a controversial view, but we think it's right that ultimately what the Constitution asks of the House and the Senate is good judgment uh, rather than a purely fact-finding function. And what is defined as the greater good of the Republic? If Congress were to conclude that the President indeed conspired with foreign powers or was guilty of corruption, and yet the votes weren't there to convict, would it be good judgment not to indict and convict? You mean not to bring articles of impeachment? Yeah. So, so hypothetically, hypothetically, if yeah, the president had conspired with foreign absolutely. powers, yes. um, yeah. and we don't know all of the relevant facts, and so I'm sure there are a lot of people in this room who feel quite certain that he did do that, and I would say to those people that I am less certain, although I think you know, there's a strong circumstantial case. Uh, you know, there, there's a question of what do you do, what, you know, what, what is politically wise? And you know, look at the Senate that we have right now. I, I think it's safe to say that unless extraordinarily clear and uncontrovertible evidence of extraordinarily evil or, or traitorous deeds comes to light, that it's unlikely that there are 67 votes in the Senate uh, to end this particular presidency. In that circumstance, let's imagine a world in which the facts about the president remain exactly as we know them to be today. So we don't learn anything new. But let's imagine that today, the Democrats had a 10-vote majority in the House, and you're Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and you're trying to figure out, well, let's, I, I, could, I could persuade my caucus to pass articles of impeachment, but I think they're going to fail in the Senate. This is not an unimaginable possibility. Do you do it? You're all looking at me as though I know the answer. You know, <laughs> my, my intuition is that you don't that it's a bad idea, that 
if you, you, impeachment is not something that you can just get up and do multiple times in a presidency. It, it's, it's the kind of power that you sort of get one shot to use. Uh, is, is that, it's not for me, I hope. <laughs> That's the president. That's the president. <laughs> he has some questions about these issues. Um, you know, well, he's being told by his advisors that he can, you know, kill someone on Fifth Avenue and he'll be fine. So I wouldn't trust them either. You know, I, I think the problem that you face is if you, if, you're, if, you, if you don't think, if you think it's almost unimaginable that your case against the president will succeed in the Senate, there's a strong argument that it is not only profoundly irresponsible to bring articles of impeachment and to set that whole machinery in motion and to bring the U.S. government to a stop to have that trial, um, not only because of the sort of broader collateral consequences of, of an impeachment by itself, but also because if a year later you do discover that the president did something way worse than you know at the time, you can't just get up and impeach once a year. That's not a thing that's gonna happen. And what's worse, imagine the scenario I just described. The president wins in the Senate, he's acquitted, and then he gets to claim vindication. Look, they brought everything they had against me and they failed. And I have proven myself you know, not to have committed an impeachable offense in the eyes of the final decision-making body. I mean, President Clinton's popularity reached its peak in the middle of his impeachment proceedings. The sense that someone has been accused in this extraordinary manner in a circumstance where there isn't really a firm national consensus in favor of removing that person from office is, is, is a real issue. George Will, I think, who was here recently, said there'd have to be a smoking howitzer to justify impeachment. <laughs> Let's say there were such a howitzer, a, a tape from, uh, I don't know, of, of Trump talking to Putin and saying, throw the election to me and I'll give you money. And yet, uh, the Democrats believe that the Senate would acquit. Should they indict under those circumstances? Well, so let me answer your question by, by starting somewhere else which is this, is, this is a deep point about what the impeachment power is. I think for a lot of folks, there's a sense that the impeachment power is essentially a deus ex machina clause in the Constitution, that it's a, a silver bullet, that it's a magic wand, that it will, it's the, it's the white knight, I'm just gonna keep throwing out metaphors, it's the white knight <laughs> that will ride in and save our democracy in its darkest hour, and it's not. The impeachment power instead is essentially a gamble by the framers. The framers wagered that in the face of presidential conduct that genuinely imperils our democratic constitutional system, a broad enough cross-section of the American people will overcome partisanship and apathy and personality quirks and whatever else may otherwise lead them to support the president and will rally in defense of their democracy itself. And if they don't do that, the impeachment power will fail and American democracy will end. I don't mean to sound extreme, but when you're talking about impeachment, that's the world you're in. And with the, so the, you know, when you ask you know, if the president did something like that and you couldn't muster a political consensus to deal with the problem, you know, then no, he won't be impeached. He won't be removed from office. Is it worth impeaching him? I don't know. That's an interesting question about politics and what will the political implications be and how it will affect the next election. But at the end of the day, I think there needs to be a robust presumption against impeaching if a clear majority of the country doesn't favor that outcome and if it's obvious that the Senate will acquit. And that's where you see the connection. You know, we called our book to end a presidency. You know, a better title may have been to save democracy because that's what the impeachment power is ultimately about. Uh, and this, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna to jump to a sort of related point, which is when you believe the president has done something terrible like that and you have a majority of the votes in the House, one approach is he's done something so bad that as a matter of principle, we're going to impeach him just to mark the historical record and just to stand on principle. A different approach is we are going to subpoena everything that moves within 100 miles of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We're going to investigate and we are going to make a case to the American people that something has gone terribly awry and we will try to persuade them and if we fail, so be it. But we will at least have made the effort to generate a political consensus in favor of doing something, anything, to deal with this problem or to put a different party in power in the next election. And so that raises a question, which is when you think the president has done something really bad and you personally think that he should be impeached for it, but a majority of your citizens don't agree or merely a majority of your citizens agree and you need a supermajority, is the best way to persuade those holdovers 
by calling for impeachment? It's not self-evident. I mean, my dad is a diehard Trump Republican. In my con <laughs> thank you. And I, <laughs> and I find that in my conversations with him, you know, leading with impeachment doesn't go over well because impeachment talk is a high stakes kind of tribal, it evokes this very intense reaction of you're out to get him, you were always out to get him, half of you were talking about impeachment before he was even sworn into office, and it's, it's just not always the best kind of political uh, message. And so when you ask what should the Democrats do in that circumstance, one question is should they impeach? A different question is should they even be talking about impeachment? Is impeachment talk the best way to win over citizens who don't already agree with you? You know, Mr. Steyer is traveling the country making quite a reputation for himself on the premise that the answer is yes. We wrote this book because we think that in many cases the answer is no. And what's more, that in at least some cases, that kind of impeachment talk actually backfires and benefits the president because it makes impeaching harder by leading people to view it as nothing but a weapon of partisan warfare. It can lead the president to rally his own ranks by saying, look, they're out to impeach me. You need to rally around me in ways that can make them less willing to check him in other circumstances. And if the president's opponents bank an election on the idea that their call for impeachment will win them seats, historically, that's a losing bet, especially today, where at the moment, at least, there's only about 40% national public support for impeachment, and therefore in many jurisdictions, that's a losing electoral gamble. And so it's not to say that impeachment talk is always a bad idea, and it's not to say that impeachment is always a bad idea. But when you're trying to build the national will to deal with a president who you think is out of control, it isn't obvious that you start with impeachment and work your way backwards. And unfortunately, I think that's become a common way of thinking about it, and we're trying to resist that. It's striking that your extremely powerful message that impeachment talk is precisely the wrong solution at a time when impeachment talk is rising uh, is one that's least likely to find sympathetic ears. And you discuss the forces of polarization and tribalization that have led to the rise of impeachment talk and made appeals to reason all the more difficult to be heard. Describe that perverse and striking dynamic. So this is chapter six of the book. It is profoundly depressing. <laughs> so if you're ever in a good mood and you're just looking to be brought down, start there. <laughs> or if you're already feeling depressed, just like wallow in it. Go to chapter six. We offer, uh, you know, we spend about 20 pages really trying to lay out what brought us to this point, what are the forces in our democratic society that have led to what everyone so casually refers to as broken politics? And, and what does that look like? And you know, we, we talk a fair bit about partisan gerrymandering, about campaign finance, about the fact that people increasingly identify themselves by reference to their political party and their political ideas, that people have fewer friends of the other party and are more inclined to view them as presumptively stupid or evil or other not nice words. And you know, when, you, when you live in a world where the political system is like that, it's, this, is, this is what's so perverse. The conditions of possibility for exercising the impeachment power are a sort of well-functioning democracy. Um, if a president comes to power, hypothetically, or Trump, <laughs> if a president comes to power who himself strains the democratic system, he can undermine the very political system whose health is necessary for an impeachment to succeed. And so there is this kind of sand pit this catch-22 about the impeachment power, that for it to save democracy, democracy needs to wor work well enough, at least, for the impeachment power to be activated. And when, you look at the, and when you look at the problem that way, the question isn't, how do we impeach? The question is instead, how do we save our democracy? How do we make it work better? You know, how do we bring it to a point where powers like impeachment can be exercised responsibly? or where we can make judgments about it based on a reasoned, shared understanding of the fact that ultimately we're all on this democratic project together. Uh, and we don't have easy answers to that. You know, we have this like nice cop-out where at the end of the book we have some stirring language about the, the great calling of our generation being a revitalization of our democratic system. But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, there's a temptation, lawyers love this trick, to give you these quick, easy answers. 
You know, if only we could do this, if only we could do that. At the end of the day, if the American people can't cool off, find a more even-keeled understanding of this, and think strategically about how to engage with each other and their elected officials in a manner that will work for the democratic system, the impeachment power may not only fail, it may actually make things worse by being used not to end a tyrannical presidency, but just to propel the forces of democratic dysfunction that were already afflicting us. You're making an incredibly profound point, and that is the urgent need for the one thing that can save our democracy, which is constitutional education. What, the, what you are doing now, ladies and gentlemen, learning about the history of the clause, understanding its perverse effects, and recognizing the need for mobilized factions to restrain themselves and not to exercise this power in a divisive way is precisely why the framers believed that knowledge about our government was necessary to save democracy. It's the most tangible expression of the need for constitutional education that I have heard. Yeah, well, you know, when you look around these days, it kind of reminds you of you know, that Yeats poem, things fall apart, right? The center cannot hold. All the worst are full of passionate intensity. You know, this is a moment where what we need is a motivated, impassioned, uh, aggressive center. People who are committed to helping to hold the political system together, rather than jumping on and overdosing on this outrage industry that has captured so much of our political discourse. You know, you see it, I go on Twitter, grudgingly, and I go, you know, you go on Twitter and someone writes, you know, President Trump is the worst thing since Hitler, or President Trump is the second coming. You know, it gets a thousand likes. Everyone retweets it, everyone's very excited. You go on Twitter, and I'm just picking Twitter at random, but you go on Twitter and you say, we need to calm down and have a conversation together about how to save our democratic system. Anecdotally, my impression is just less excitement because we've created information environments and we've created a social discourse that rewards the extremes and undermines and I think doesn't give enough credit to the center. And what I like to hope, uh, and what this book is at least meant to be a part of, is a sort of awakening of this understanding that there are great powers contained in the Constitution, and those powers are the guarantor of our freedom. Um, and in order for them to be exercised responsibly and effectively, and in a way that actually works to the greater end of us all, however you may feel on particular questions of policy, we need to take our responsibility as citizens seriously. Uh, and it's cheap and it's easy to just live in a perpetual state of outrage, and I'm not saying that outrage isn't appropriate in response to a lot of what's occurring. I'm mad as hell about a lot of it. You know, I wake up in the morning, most mornings, and I go sue the president, and I'm glad I do. But, but you, can, you can feel that way. You can feel that way and still think that what we ultimately need to do is recognize the role that those litigation checks and that the role that that outrage plays in a broader effort at stabilizing our understanding of democracy and of, and of engaging with each other instead of just demonizing anyone who sees things differently. And impeachment ultimately hinges on that. That impeachment requires a supermajority of the Senate. And that was a choice by the framers to, to require national deliberation. We, I'm learning so much from you. Lawsuits are a form of reason. Tweets are a form of passion. The impeachment mechanism was one of the cooling mechanisms that the framers designed to ensure the rule, the, the rule of reason rather than passion. And that Yates quotation is so resonant. You've heard me, friends, talk about Madison in Federalist 55. Uh, in all large assemblies, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Even if every Athenian had been Socrates, Athens would still have been a mob. And Joshua's quotation of Yeats about the worst are full of passionate intensity channels the framers' feeling that when we give rise to the self-indulgent of momentary factionalized passions, we are led to the fate of Athens. And you were reminding us that the impeachment power itself is one of those slow, deliberative processes which should cool down passion so that bipartisan reason can prevail. This is remarkably clarifying and illuminating. It is now time for some questions, and we begin with uh, a bit of uh, uh, friendly feedback. Uh, great socks. <laughs> okay. So I will answer that question. Uh, my, my fiance, 
strongly objected to my wearing these socks. <laughs> he is an artist with terrible taste, apparently. Um, I've worn them at three events, and this is the third at which someone in the audience has complimented them. Wow. <laughs> I am delighted. Uh, now let's return to the Constitution and... From my socks to Athens. <laughs> Absolutely. And back. Your okay. socks would be well, would be applauded in Athens. The, the agora would fall down in admiration. If this president is not removed from office, do you see the U.S. going further down the path to tyranny? And do you see this as a clear and present danger? Well, we're not on a good path at, at the moment. You know, it, one question is, you know, removed from office. That could either mean that he loses the 2020 election, uh, or it could mean, you know, if he's not impeached, will American democracy survive? I, I, I guess I'm a bit of an optimist. You wouldn't know that from reading the book. Um, but I'm a bit of an optimist. I think American democracy is bigger and greater and more powerful than the worst that Donald Trump can throw at it. And I think, I like to hope that in 2020, uh, and I know this is a nonpartisan space, but I am, I can say what I want. Um, you know, I, so there. I like to hope that in 2020, he'll be, he, will, he will lose power. Um, and I like to hope that if evidence of wrongdoing of the kind that you described emerges before then, that he will be impeached and removed from office. Um, if that kind of evidence that is clear and, and can hold a majority comes to light. You know, I, I have to say, I've, I am deeply unnerved. Not, you know, that he has policies that I disapprove of, and that's the way of the world. But he governs in a fundamentally authoritarian manner. The way he praises foreign dictators, the way he says that he wishes people here would be more like people in North Korea, the way he exercises power to destroy families along the southern border, and then ostentatiously lies about it, as though he can say whatever he wants, and if he just kicks up enough dust, then words lose all meaning, and power can be exercised with no restraint. That's deeply unnerving to me. And I, don't, I think that if he remains in office long enough, and if the American people become accustomed to that, we are in a really bad spot. That it's not obvious to me that our democracy, in a meaningful sense of the term, would survive that. And it's not obvious to me, I'll go a step further, that the Democrats would survive that. Because what we're seeing under Trump, I think, is a broader corruption of the way that a lot of people on both sides of the aisle think and talk about politics and engage with each other. That I find part, what I find so unnerving about Trump is how he seems to colonize even his enemies and to drive them into fits of fury and outrage where any end justifies, any means justifies the ends of getting rid of him. And that kind of existential view of politics is inconsistent with a two-party democratic system. And so, you know, do I think we can survive one term of him? Yes. I, I hope, I sure hope we can survive two, and I hope that if that were to happen, which I, don't, I hope it doesn't, I hope that if that were to happen, that would be more robust checks and balances. But look, I don't, I think that there are real problematic signs. You know, I disagree with him in ways that I wouldn't have with Reagan or Bush or Clinton or Obama. I think in ways that should cross partisan lines and aren't, which is part of what freaks me out so much. Um, and so to whoever asked that question, the midterms matter. The 2020 election matters. And if evidence of the kind that Jeff talked about comes to light, impeachment matters. Because like I said with Nixon, if the country had not impeached him, knowing what it knew, that would have fundamentally changed the public's understanding of what the president can get away with. And if Mueller or somebody else comes to light, comes, comes forward with credible convincing evidence of truly extraordinary wrongdoing and the president is left in office, that establishes a profoundly disturbing precedent. And those are the kinds of precedents that lead a democracy to its end. Um, and so that, I think, is why it's important to remain vigilant. We should say it, the, uh, that the, you, do you believe that anything that Mueller is now investigating or seems likely to come up with would be impeachable? So when you say could be impeachable. Should be, under the extraordinarily you know, strong standards that you yes. articulated. So I think that if evidence emerges, and I, for what it's worth, I do not think that we have sufficient evidence yet. If sufficiently clear evidence comes to light that the president either personally or with knowledge that his subordinates were doing so, 
conspired with foreign agents in an effort to alter the outcome of the election, uh, that that would be impeachable. That really goes to the heart of the framers' reason for putting the impeachment power there in the first place, which was fear that presidents would corrupt the uh, electoral process. I think if the president engaged in criminal or other significant wrongdoing in his private business or elsewhere, and is now before the election, and is now using the power of his office to prevent investigations into that, that that would properly qualify as impeachable if there were clear enough evidence of that. And I think if he is using the pardon power uh, in a manner designed to essentially suborn perjury and to lead witnesses to not come forward and speak truthfully in investigations, or if he engages in more pardons like the Arpaio pardon, whose sole purpose was to send a message that you can racially you know, uh, uh, brutalize uh, undocumented migrants and get away with it with no legal sanction, that that too would in principle be impeachable. But again, you know, that's at the realm of what would in theory justify it. Whether, it. whether the facts are there is an open question and whether it would then be wise or even possible to impeach is, is in my view the more important question that follows. This questioner asked you to say more about how abuse of the pardon power could be impeachable, and does any of the impeachment talk mean anything if Trump can pardon himself? Well, that's a great question. Yes, it is. <laughs> Congratulations to, to somebody. Are we have so, always great questions here at the company. So, you know, it's funny. I, I was thinking about this the other day. There's this really weird argument going around that the president, this president, Trump, cannot be impeached for uh, his pardons because they constitute an exercise of the executive power. And if you think back to the Clinton impeachment, the argument was that he couldn't be impeached because the conduct at issue was in a private capacity. So in the 1990s, you have the Democrats arguing that a president can't be impeached when he doesn't use his executive power. And now you have Republicans arguing that a president can't be impeached when he does. And, you know, and therefore, what? Yeah, you know, it's sort of, it's, it seems kind of crazy when you say it that way, that uh, it's like he can never be impeached because either he's using his power or he's not. And apparently, either of those is totally kosher. You know, of course, they were both wrong. Uh, the Democrats were wrong in the 1990s, uh, and the Republicans are wrong today. That using the president's impeach, uh, using the pardon power in a manner designed to undermine the democratic system is impeachable. And take an example, just to think about how crazy this argument is. What if the president were bribed? What if someone said, I'm gonna give you a million dollars if you pardon me? Is the, is the idea that because he's using his official power, it's not bribery within the meaning of the clause? Or what if the president said, I will give in advance a pardon to anybody who shoots and kills a black person? That would violate the equal protection clause in some sort of general sense. But it would surely seem like an abuse, and I mean, that's an extreme example, but it seems, you know, I will pardon anybody who goes and destroys a Democrat's field office, um, at least as to federal criminal prosecution. It, it seems crazy to think that that would not be impeachable, and that the intuition that it can't be is a good one. And here's why. The, the Constitution gives the president incredibly broad powers, and many of those powers, if used nefariously, could undermine the health of our democratic system. And it is simply not the case that the president needs to have committed a crime as written in federal criminal law in order to be impeached. And we talk about that at great length in chapter two, and I, I commend that discussion to you. One of the points that we make, which has not been previously appreciated in, in our view, is that if you look at the original understanding of the Constitution, uh, the framers did not empower the federal government to regulate in lots of areas. And in particular, they gave it very little power to create federal criminal law. And it wasn't until the early 20th century that there actually was a federal criminal code of any breadth, because it wasn't really until the New Deal and the period shortly preceding it that courts held that Congress even had enough power to regulate in, in, the, in the criminal space in the way that we now think of it as doing. And it's hard to imagine why the framers would have limited impeachment to crimes and then deprived Congress of the power to criminalize many of the very things that had led them to create the impeachment power in the first place. And so if you, you know, once you appreciate that a high crime and misdemeanor doesn't in fact need to be a crime, and it is simply a, an exercise of presidential power or presidential conduct that imperils the democratic system, it's very easy to imagine how a pardon uh, could run afoul of that. And what about self-pardons? Can he pardon himself? 
You know, that's, that's one of those questions that law professors love to, love to debate. You know, my very strong intuition is no, because there is such a robust rule against serving as the judge in your own case. That principle is shot through constitutional law. You know, there's not an answer to the question of whether he can pardon himself. And I'm going to go a step further. I don't think it's an interesting question practically, because a pardon does not absolve you of impeachment. The Constitution is clear that the pardon power does not apply in cases of impeachment. So if the president's secretary of defense or if a federal judge commits a crime and is pardoned, they can still be impeached for the very same conduct. And so when you talk about a president self-pardoning, what you're talking about is a president immunizing himself from a criminal indictment. And then there's a whole separate debate about whether a president can be criminally indicted. That's also not interesting. And the reason is that Mr. Mueller is not likely to indict President Trump. There's robust executive branch practice and precedent suggesting that he can't or that he shouldn't. And although there are some quite compelling arguments that in theory the president can be criminally indicted, I just think practically it's exceedingly unlikely that that will occur. So when you, when you talk about the self-pardon question, what you're saying is, could the president absolve himself of criminal liability were he criminally indicted, which also probably isn't going to happen, which would not free him of state criminal liability after he leaves office, and which would not immunize him against the impeachment power, which can overcome a pardon. And so there's been a tremendous amount of energy devoted to the self-pardon and criminal indictment points, and I think rightly so, because the president's claims to those power are evidence of his tyrannical pretensions, and it's unnerving that he would publicly grab that power and talk about himself that way. But practically, I don't think it's likely to make a great deal of difference whether he can self-pardon or whether he can be criminally indicted. One extraordinarily powerful message from our conversation is uh, the dangers of over-legalizing these debates. And they are Lawyers interesting. Lawyers are the worst. Well, they're, no, they're the best. And our audience is hunger, hungry for legal education. And it's important for all of you to understand these technical points. You must listen closely to the arguments for and against presidential self-pardons, for and against uh, indictment of a president, and so forth. But you're saying, ultimately, in practice, it, uh, the impeachment power is political in the highest sense. And I'm also hearing you say that in drafting articles of impeachment, rather than focusing on technical violations like obstruction or uh, violation of criminal statutes, it's better to articulate crimes against the state. If, if you were drafting uh, articles against President Trump, for the, for the, you, you gave a strong bill of particulars that he may have committed, they were not phrased in legal terms of obstruction. What would they look like and should Congress consider them? Well, so I think as a model, and we, we, ha we actually include one of these articles in the book in chapter two. The Nixon impeachment was a, was a good case study. They approved the House Judiciary Committee, although not the House, because Nixon resigned first. But the House Judiciary Committee approved, or sorry, the Special Committee, approved three articles of impeachment against Nixon. And part of what's so good about those is they mix the particular with the pattern. That, you know, sometimes what's wrong with what a president has done is a single act, right? So if the president just walked out and shot five people, that would seem impeachable and the article of impeachment would be for shooting five people. Um, but usually what justifies impeachment isn't just a single instance of improper conduct, it's a pattern of conduct, each piece of which may in the abstract be tolerable, but the combination of which creates a pattern that's intolerable. And so in the Nixon case, they had an obstruction article that did not link itself to the federal criminal code, but then encompassed within it many subparagraphs of making false public statements, uh, trying to support perjury, sending the FBI and the CIA to do this and that. That manner of doing it, I think, is most appropriate. And so I, I tend not to worry. I don't, I don't sit up at night sort of drafting model articles of impeachment against the president, although that, you know, everyone gets their jollies in different ways. But that's, <laughs> that's you know, that's, that's not quite my, my, my style. I, I do think that the point about over-legalizing it is a good one. I, I actually, you know, it's funny because I'm, I'm burdened by a law degree. And I tend to think that the way that lawyers talk about these things is unhelpful. I'm not a fan of the fact that MSNBC and CNN and Fox have turned most of their commentary about this over to lawyers and law professors. 
um, you know, Alan Dershowitz being the worst of the lot, but obviously there's quite a, a few of them. And part of what I don't like about it is that what it suggests is that these issues are the province of lawyers, that these are dry, technical issues that you need a good working understanding of Hamilton and Madison and Title 18 of the US Code and all sorts of other stuff to, to have thoughts about. And that's not true. At the end of the, I mean, that stuff matters. I don't mean to say it's not important, but I do think we're, we're in the realm of political judgment and political statecraft. Uh, we're in the realm of things that citizens can engage with. And I, and I think that when you, when you over-legalize these things, you actually, people lose the ability to talk about presidential power having been abused or exercised poorly um, because they're instead fixated on whether it complied with this or that precedent or this or that statute. And so a, you know, this, is, this is, in my view, one of the lurking dangers. People argue on TV that only crimes are impeachable. And I've already said why I think that's wrong, and we have a lot more about it in the book. One of the dangerous effects of that is it reframes discussion about presidential power into a discussion about criminal law you know, and whether the president has committed a crime. And when you think about the president's activity through the prism of criminal law, which is a distinctly legal prism, instead of through the prism of, is this a wise, prudent, abusive exercise of power? Is this the kind of country that we are? Is this, the, is this a use of power consistent with being a democracy? Um, it, it sort of affects the public in this kind of systemic way. And so one of our goals in the book is to push back on that sort of legalistic uh, mindset and to offer all the tools necessary to navigate it, but to emphasize that ultimately there's a pretty common sense political judgment to be made here about whether what the president did was bad and whether our democracy can persist with a president who's done that. Last question. Uh, do you think that New voters and young adults know the difference between impeachment and a president leading office, and how would you educate the youth about the central meaning of the impeachment clause? Ah, the youth. <laughs> I am occasionally mistaken for one of them. <laughs> you are. Or I'll, just, I'll just put it in a different way. How would you educate all Americans, as you've done so brilliantly? Today? I would write a book. You, and you've done it. <laughs> It's time for closing. It's time for closing arguments. I don't know what more you want of me, okay? <laughs> I want you to distill your message and your light into a crisp paragraph that will spread across America and across the world. So I'm not going to do that, but I just uh, that, but you know, it is true. I think there are many misapprehensions and misunderstandings of the impeachment power. Uh, and they are often linked to magical thinking about how law will somehow save us all. They're linked to apocalyptic thinking that the country is going to fall over a cliff tomorrow. And they're linked to tribal thinking that anyone in our political system who disagrees with us is the enemy. And those are all deeply nefarious trends. And it's hard because all of us have an impulse to succumb to them from time to time. But part of being a responsible citizen is taking a step back, catching your breath, and trying to think even-handedly and realistically about what it means to be in a democracy where people disagree with each other, where sometimes you have to use these great powers and sometimes you don't, and where sometimes politics is the answer to our problems and sometimes it is itself the problem. And uh, you know, there are no easy answers here, which can be frustrating for people. Trump is himself the master of making everything sound like it has a trick solution. This is hard and this is complicated and that's what it means to be a grown-up in a democracy. It's not easy. Uh, and our book is one step in the direction of trying to educate a populace that's eager to exercise its powers wisely and to be good citizens. Uh, and especially for younger voters, you know, they're coming into our political system at a time where it's easy to take this for granted. You know, I spoke to my grandfather when I started writing this book, and you know, it's, he said, you know, it's so funny. Back when I was a kid, and frankly, for most of my life, Impeachment just wasn't a thing people talked about. And now it's everywhere. And I don't understand why. But for people being raised now, it's taken for granted that this is how they, things are. And so one of the jobs that I think we all have is to show them that it can be otherwise and that it should be otherwise, and hopefully with their electoral support to help make that happen.
I, I just need to say one more time, for increasing awareness and understanding of the Constitution and spreading reason rather than passion in the highest tradition of the National Constitution Center, please join me in thanking once again Joshua Max. This episode was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, and Tanea Tauber. For more on the upcoming impeachment trial, tune in to this week's episode of our companion podcast, We the People. Our guests this week are Ken Starr and Joan Biskupic. Ken Starr is the former independent counsel who investigated President Clinton before he was impeached. And Joan Biskupic is CNN Supreme Court analyst and author of The Chief, a biography of Chief Justice John Roberts, who will preside over President Trump's impeachment trial. So Ken and Joan have a lot to teach us about past impeachments, what this impeachment trial might look like, and more. So please check out that episode of We the People when it comes out this Thursday. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.